We are in Parshat Miketz this morning. We are um, in the, of course, third, third of the Parsha, as we are in each Parsha. Um, and so we are in the part of our story uh, where the brothers have come down to Egypt in order to procure food. The famine is severe in Canaan. And this was actually a very common practice in the ancient world. Um, The northern part of Egypt is not dependent on rain for produce. The northern part of Egypt is dependent on the overflowing of the Nile for irrigating the crops. So often... The Nile has its own, you know, things that contribute to whether or not it is high or low. Some of that is rain, but it can also be rain in other places, right, So that, that makes the Nile swell. So, um, so when there's famine and drought in southern Canaan, if you push down into northern Egypt, there's often food because of the Nile and because of the Nile irrigating those crops. Therefore, um, it was very common in the ancient world when there was drought and there was, therefore, famine in um, the south of Canaan. Lots of people came over the border and hung out in northern Egypt, either trading for food that Egypt had or to become um, migrant workers, you know, so that they would tend to whatever it was that they could get as day labor jobs in order to get food. Um, In our case, the brothers are coming down with plenty of money. They don't need to work. They they just need the goods. It's like people in Russia lining up and there isn't anything. Like even if they have money, there's there's nothing to buy. So the brothers are coming down with plenty of gold and silver and money to pay for food. They appear at the place where Joseph is in charge, right? He's kind of, he oversees all of it, obviously. Um, And if you'll recall, the first part of our story is he sends them back with the money that they brought. He puts the money back in their packs. So when they get home, they've got the grain, but they've also got their money back. Right. So they have to he wants to see, are they going to be honest about about saying, wait a minute, we you gave us our money back and they don't bring Benjamin You'll recall Jacob does not allow them to take Benjamin. Why? He's the youngest. He's the youngest and? The most precious. The most precious. Because? He was the son of Rachel. Son of Rachel. And Yosef is gone. Right? In Yaakov's mind, Benjamin is the only son of Rachel left. Because Yosef is gone. And presumed dead. Although, of course, there's a long Midrashic tradition that Yaakov never believed he was dead and held out hope till the end that he would see his son again. Um, So, Yaakov doesn't allow Benjamin to go with them because uh, he's too afraid that something's going to happen to him. But what does Joseph say? What does Yosef say when they appear before Yosef? Where's Benjamin? Where? You're, you're spies, don't think I don't know. You're here to, to find the weaknesses of Egypt so you can exploit them and mount an attack. And they deny it, and we are 
you know, tw- 11 brothers. And he's like, what do you mean 11? I don't see 11 of you. We were 12. No, we're 11. I don't see 11. Right? Because he knows Benjamin's not there. And he says, don't come back here without Benjamin, or I'm not buying this story of you being brothers. So that's where we're picking up the story, is that they have come back down with Benjamin. Yehuda, the only way Yehuda could get Yaakov to let Benjamin go was to say, I swear to you, he'll be fine. And if my, my life is surety. If something happens to him, my life is forfeit. So he stands in for Benjamin and assures his safety to his father so that they can go get more food. Remember, they all have families. This is 11 families worth of food, plus Yaakov's people. Yaakov has three wives. So he's, it's a huge amount of people that they're trying to feed, huge amounts of people. So think refugee camps where there's, there's just there's nothing to eat. So they are on the border of starvation, and the brothers have to come back down to get another, another load of groceries to take back to. Uh, I've, been, I've been watching the, um, the Walking Dead, right? So I'm like immersed in this, you know, kind of uh, apocalyptic, you know, kind of situation where it's like just finding a can of something, mm-hmm. right? Is like so exciting. Do- dog food, when the kid brought out the dog food. Um, like, it just is, that, that's how bad it is. There's nothing to feed the family. So we are going to look at chapter 43, and let's start at uh, verse 15, so we can get a flavor of what's going on. The page is 247 in the green book. 247 in green. 265. 265 in red. Who wants to read? When Joseph saw Benjamin with him, he said to his house steward, Take the men into the house, slaughter and prepare an animal, for the men will dine with me at noon. The man did as Joseph said, and he brought the men into Joseph's house. But the men were frightened at being brought into Joseph's house. It must be, they thought, because of the money replaced in our bags the first time that we have been brought inside as a pretext to attack us and seize us as slaves with our pack animals. So they went up to Joseph's house steward and spoke to him at the entrance of the house. If you please, my lord, they said, we came down once before to procure food. But when we arrived at the night encampment and opened our bags, there was each one's money in the mouth of his bag, our money in full. So we have brought it back with us, and we have brought down uh, with us other money to procure food. We do not know who put the money in our bags. He replied, all is well with you. Do not be afraid. Your God, the God of your father, must have put treasure in your bags for you. I got your payment. And he brought out Simeon to them. All right. Simeon had been held until they came back down with Benjamin. So he's been held in Joseph's private dungeon. In, in wealthy, wealthy houses in Egypt, there was a private dungeon often where folks were held. Like we saw this with Potiphar. He had, you know... On his property was the Beit HaSohar, the prison where Joseph was held. So, so the men took the gift, meaning what was in their pack, and then they took 
other money to buy food. They're going to return the money that's not that they've already should have given to Joseph, that they did give to Joseph, but they came back. And they're going to take the same amount of money to buy more food. So they have double the money and Benjamin. They made their way down to Egypt where they presented themselves to Yosef. So most likely, this is not that they actually come before Joseph. It's most likely that they come to the trading post over which Joseph has authority. Right? They've been summoned. They've been told to come back down and bring Benjamin. They don't know how to find Joseph. Right? They, they just come and report to the trading post to say, okay, we did what we were supposed to do. We did what the vizier told us to do. But Joseph sees them. Joseph's watching and waiting for them. And he sees that Benjamin is with them. So imagine this moment for Yosef. The Torah is very terse and just kind of walks through stuff pretty quickly. But Peter Pizzolo would have us really inhabit more moments of this story um, than, than we get just by reading over it. Imagine this for Yosef. It's been decades since he's been gone, right? And he, he sees his brothers. That had to be a shock the first time that happened. They are his half-brothers, and his relationship with them was never good. That's an understatement. That's an understatement. <laughs> we can assume he had a slightly different relationship with Benjamin, who was little, and probably wasn't in on the, you know, let's throw our brother in a pit or murder him. Like, you know, Benjamin would have been too young, A. B, we can assume Yosef had a special affection for his only full brother, and who was way younger. So he's already dealt with the brothers once, but now here they are, and Benjamin is with them. And Yosef knows that Benjamin's in their care. And he doesn't know what that means. All he knows is what it felt like to be in their care, or lack thereof, right? But in their charge, as the son of Rachel, a beloved, favored son of Rachel, a young one, um, not probably the strongest among them. He's a dreamer, right? A dream interpreter, you know. He's probably a snag, you know, sensitive new age guy, right? So he's, he's not, he's not a man of the field, you know what I mean? And, um, and so he remembers how that went for him. So imagine he sees Benjamin and, you know, so this whole mix of emotions, what's it, what's it like for Benjamin? Are they torturing him? Do they hate him? You know, do they threaten him privately? We have no idea, neither does Joseph, what the relationship is between the brothers and Benjamin yet. We don't know yet. We're going to see. But imagine his emotion at seeing his brother. And he can't say anything or feels he can't say anything yet. So part of what we, we want to live in is what is Yosef's motive? Yosef could have just told them right now who he is. He... He's completely safe. He is the vizier of Egypt. He's second in command of the richest country in the world. Because they don't know the rest of the world, right? But the world they know, Egypt is the most powerful empire in the known world. Why not just tell them right now, come here, guys. Benjamin's here. He's released Simeon. Let, let's, let's come clean. Let's, 
Right? Why not, why not right now? He's toying with them. He's toying with them. So what does that imply about his motives? Well, they really messed with him. They messed with him, so he's going to mess with them. Okay? Or he may want to see how they treated Benjamin, or if there's any change in them. Why? He wanted the brothers... Why? Why see if there's a change in them? Well, uh, the way they treated him, and uh, maybe they... Maybe they changed uh, personally in their lives and, uh, or they uh, had compassion for their father. But w- why Why does he set up a test for that? What, what's his interest in finding that out? Huh? He likes to see the best in people and he's hoping that there's something to see in them. Okay, so he's hoping they'll prove him right that maybe they've changed because he wants evidence of the good in them. Okay. Yeah, I, I was going to essentially echo that. Uh, the way that I would put it is, he's he's willing to, he's he's willing to reconcile if he sees evidence that they have changed. If they, on the other hand, if he sees evidence that they haven't really changed, then he's willing to let the situation play out. So that's the why. Is that if he sees change, he's clearly willing to risk. He's willing to do something differently than if he doesn't do this test, right? If he just, or if they fail the test, then so it seems that there's something he's wanting beyond just like okay, if they've changed or not, who cares? Unless that means something to Joseph. If they've changed, then what? Well, he can reconcile, but I, I have the exact opposite question. Okay, he's now in control. They tried to kill him. They sold him into slavery. Why? My question is not, not, you know, why does he want to reconcile, but why doesn't he just go and do something terrible to them? What is it about him that Which is makes really him the not, same question. Why set all this up? Yeah, because and, in, he, he should have a big grudge against them. He should, well, I mean, well, he, he should, but I mean... Than good. He's, you know, it makes him holier, better than... It just elevates him to have that attitude. So maybe something's changed about Yosef. Maybe he is elevated. Maybe he's matured. Maybe he is holier in, in, in that he's got a deeper relationship with a set of values that we would call godly. Maybe he really does want to not go to revenge. And maybe he really does want to go towards reconciliation. But he's going to need evidence that that's Possible, maybe. maybe yeah, I think to answer Bert's question, Bert, right? yeah. um, I think that perhaps the reason why he doesn't go in the direction of, you know, I'm really going to mess with him now, is that his own, his whole life has been nothing but evidence to him that you can never, you can never really predict what's going to happen in that. Uh, you know, even before he got thrown into the pit, he was probably going around moping to himself, saying, "You know, my life with these half brothers is terrible. Nobody likes me. Everybody hates me." And 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 yet, you know, here through a a bunch of circumstances, none of which he could have foreseen, he's number two in Egypt. And so and so, he has probably come to some sort of an understanding that. 
sometimes, you know, people can change even if you can't put your finger on what it was that caused them to change. So this is a very hopeful reading of who Yosef is. In the Midrashic tradition, there is rabbinic argument and debate, amazingly enough. Uh, can you imagine that? Um, about Yosef's motives. And some of them, actually, Bert, some of the commentators see this as, as cruelty. That he's being intentionally cruel, and he's dangling them, and he might at any moment say off with their heads, right? That he's that he's toying with them like a cat with a mouse, and watching them squirm and suffer, Mm -hmm. and is getting pleasure from that, and might at any moment say kill them all until he can't take it. Until he can't take. So Ramban, I think it's Ramban. Ramban. One of the, our most famous commentators doesn't forgive Yosef for this, says that this is maybe, disgusting uh, behavior. Joseph, maybe he, he un, he's perceived in some way that he was favored by his father. And I know that, in a way, I was a favorite of two children. It makes you feel really sorry for the other people. So either they he... have more empathy when they don't treat you very nicely. Either this is a favorable reading of Yosef, from. that he's he gets it, and he's trying to see who they are, and he's opening up possibilities, or this is a horrible thing he's doing, and he's toying with them, and he's having them purposefully suffer, holding out the possibility of killing them whenever he pleases. Mickey and then Laura. You know, this is uh, decades later, and sometimes the, uh, the hate diminishes as you get older, and... Uh, and you've gone through all kinds of things in your life, and now you've been elevated, and, and uh, uh, hatred uh, is less significant at that stage. So that's a favorable reading of him here, yes? That he's being forgiving, and he's successful enough now that he doesn't need to hold on to old stuff. Well, he's, he's moving on. He's cautious, but, uh, but uh, he's, you know, when you, when you, all you have is hate in your heart, it diminishes your own life, and who needs it? So, so you both Mickey's read it as he's he's moved on. He has some compassion. He's put them empathy. He's put them himself in their shoes. He gets it that he was treated differently, and poor brothers they weren't acknowledged. Possibly he's able to let go of old stuff now that he's successful. Laura, well, I see. Also possible that it's a, it's a swirl, you know. You can't decide between chocolate and vanilla. Um, he's conflicted. He could be having both of these. You know, I I have these siblings. I God, I wish it were different. You know, I mean, it's such a modern story too. I, you know, couldn't we just be a family? But they were so rotten to me. I just want to make them suffer too. And then, you know, I think both can be held at the same time. So confusion that both of these are going on, that he alternates between wanting to forgive and exploring it, and then, oh, it's so hard to let go and get caught up. Why'd you have to do that to me? How many of us are completely capable and completely confident and completely present in our lives, and then we go back home? (laughs) <laughs> and experience a complete erosion of like and that feeling of confidence and success <laughs> and independent right often as soon as we are placed back in that context with those people who knew us then whose vision of us is still that in some ways 
it, it becomes sometimes it's very challenging to stay centered and to stay the vizier of Egypt because what you go back to being is a little brother who was picked on as soon as you're back in that context right so um, so many people can't deal with you know kids who are like in you know 13 14 15 because they, they were so traumatized at that age that immediately walking into a classroom of those that age kids they freak as adults like they can't do it there's there's things that are so painful for us and so raw still that we don't even know often until we put ourselves in that context so maybe joseph was like he wants to be this he's become this and yet the minute he sees them it triggers all this other stuff and maybe he's just massively vacillating and confused and he's, he's clearly tangled. a changed he's clearly a changed man he's <clears throat> clearly a changed i mean no matter which of these things is true he's very changed from, because the well from the old joseph would have said you remember i had that dream a long time ago well here it is i told you so here i am i'm in charge you're there huh you know so so he's clearly he's in a different place now about he's what he's doing clearly in a different place. either Woody, whatever his motives are he's much more sophisticated um, one of our commentators does say he's doing this in order to set it up so that they do in fact bow to him so he can make the dream a reality all right so um, so good so hold all of that as we go into what happens, like what he does, right? What does he do? So they come back with the food and double the money, the money they're going to return and the money to buy new stuff, right? He sees them and says to his house steward, he says to the guy who's in charge of his palace, take them, those guys, into my house. Slaughter and prepare an animal because they're going to dine with me for the big noon lunch the big meal was at noon right the big meal like, like where I come from right you had there's dinner and there's supper so the big meal happens in the afternoon right then you have a smaller meal later and, um, in Israel too often so you so so he's gonna he, the big meal he's gonna serve meat right this is a big deal he, they're gonna slaughter an animal it's gonna be a huge banquet right what, what is the brother's experience of this wow they're afraid they're fearful. why because they are they being set up? So all they, they know, know is that they've come money. to return the money. Right. They show up at the marketplace. They report that they're here and that they've brought Benj or whatever. And what happens? They're seized mm-hmm. and taken to the palace. They don't know why. They're waiting for the other shooter. They're wait. They don't know why they've been taken to the palace. <laughs> they know there's a dungeon in everybody's palace. Did they come to return the money? They came well, to return well, the money did, and buy that, more food. Well, did they come to it, or did they kind of decide to return it after they were got afraid? Well, so we... It does say that they... And take with you double the money, carrying back with you the money that was replaced in the mouth of your bags. Perhaps it was a mistake, right? So they've been, we, they've been instructed by Yaakov, take the money back. They took it back, but maybe they weren't going to give it back. Yeah, maybe. Maybe they weren't going to give <laughs> it back, okay? <laughs> Let's push. <laughs> okay. So they, they are afraid. That's clear, right? Because he brought them to Joseph's house. But the men were frightened at being brought into Joseph's house. So this is how we know that they've not been told, oh, you're guests of the vizier, be welcome here, right? All we know is that they, they've been seized and taken to his house. So they say to each other, it must be, they thought, 
because of the money we're placed in our bags the first time, right? And they're bringing us inside as a pretext basically to, to kidnap us, you know, to make us slaves. They can't do that outside without explanation. If they bring us in here and no one ever hears from us again, or we just now are kept in here at gunpoint for the rest of you know, our lives, who, who's going to know? Um, and our pack animals as well, meaning all of our wealth that we brought down with us. Because they're wealthy. They're not coming here, remember, as poor people. So their cars have been seized as well. They drive a nice car. Not the rolls. <laughs> I'm afraid so. The rolls got taken into the garage of the vizier. So they are now thinking, uh-oh. Right, they've brought enough pack animals to take all the stuff home. So think about it. They come with you know really lovely Hummers that, that they can load up and take home. The Hummers have been seized. So they went into Joseph's. They went to the house steward and spoke to him at the entrance of the house. Like they, they're trying like to, to, to delay going into the house till they can figure out what's going on. If you please, my lord, they said. We came down once before to procure food, but when we arrived, the money was still there. Right? They are coming clean. Whether that was their intention, Bert is a very suspicious man. Whether that was their intention or not, they are coming clean now because they are terrified that that's what this is about. Because they know something was off. Why was there money back in their bags? So they think they're being set up, maybe. But um, they're going to come clean. So we've brought it with us, and we want to do business with you. We want to buy more. And we don't know how the money got there, and they're freaking out. So the steward replies at verse 23, it's all right. Don't be afraid, right? Your God, the God of your father, must have put the treasure in the bags for you, right? So it's magic. That was a very common thing in Egypt, magic, right? So maybe one of the gods has favored you and made a magic thing happen, and right? It's, that's how it got in your bags. We don't, we don't know. We don't care. It's not about us. We received your payment. The bill was paid in full. What happened to y'all after that? Was not, we have no idea, right? Go talk to your diviners. Go, you know, go talk to your sorcerers. We have no idea. The bill was paid. All right, so 24. The man then ushered the men into Joseph's house. He supplied water and they washed their feet, and he gave fodder to their asses. He laid out the offering for the arrival of Joseph at noon, for they had heard that they would eat food there. Go on. When Joseph entered the house, they presented to him the offering they had brought into the house, and they bowed down before him to the ground. He asked them, how they were, and said, How is your aged father of whom you spoke? Is he still alive? They said, Your servant, our father, is well. Go on. He is still alive. And they knelt and bowed down. He looked up and saw his full brother, Benjamin, his mother's son, and he said, Is this your younger brother you told me about? And he added, God be gracious to you, my son. Joseph hurried out, for he was so deeply stirred with tender warmth toward his brother that he wanted to weep, and he went into an inner chamber, and there he wept. He washed his face, and when he came out, he held himself in check and said, Serve food. He served him separately, and them separately, and the Egyptians who usually ate with him separately, for the Egyptians could not eat food with the Hebrews since it was an abomination to the Egyptians. And they were seated before him, the firstborn according to his seniority, 
and the youngest according to his youth. The men looked at each other in amazement. He presented portions of food to them from which it was from what was in front of him. Benjamin's portion exceeded all of them fivefold, and they drank and grew drunk with him. Afterwards, he commanded the one in charge of his household, saying, Fill the men's bags with food as much as they can carry, and put each man's silver in the mouth of his bag. And they put my, and put my goblet <coughs> in the mouth of the youngest one's bag, along with the silver for his grain. He did just as Joseph instructed. Okay. So, he goes, they go into the house... And he, start, he treats them as guests, right? He bathes their feet. That's a good sign. Right? That's what you do to welcome people into your home. And in the ancient Near East, if you welcome people into your home like that, you are now the host. They are the guest. There are strict rules about what you do to a guest and what you don't do to a guest in your home. So he's making it clear to them he's now their host. They're his guest. He feeds. He puts gas in the hummers, right? <laughs> good indication that they might be going home. At some point. Are the parallels between this and Abraham and the men who came to the tent and Sarah? Always. Mm-hmm. Always we are to understand, right, this idea of welcoming mm-hmm. guests and all, absolutely. So he laid, so they laid out their gifts, right? You know, they're going to see the, the vizier of Egypt. They don't come empty-handed. They're wealthy, right? They come with the appropriate gifts. Um, I've always find, found that ironic, like, you know, if you're going to like a really rich person's house, you take you gifts it. to people who don't need it. You go to someone else's house, they invite you over. Sure, I'll come over for spaghetti. You don't bring anything necessarily, right? It's like, and they're the ones who need. Just ironic, but um, so when Joseph came home, they give him the gifts. He greeted them, and what's the first thing he asks them? Right? How was your? How's your father? Right? Is he still well? Is he, he asks after the shalom of their father, right? This is still in Israel, how you ask about someone. Mashlomcha, mashlomech. How's your shalom? How whole are you? Right? You don't say, how are you? Mashlomech. How's your, how's your shalom? And so they ask after the shalom of their father, and you can imagine how it seems like a casual question or a polite question that you ask after someone's family. That's a nice thing to do. That's considered polite. How's, how's your family? But, of course, we know for Yosef, imagine it's been a while. His father's old. So when he asks, how is he? Is he well? Like, he's waiting to hear. Like, is there any hope that he's going to see this man again? And so... Right, they answer that yes, in fact, he is, um, and they bow down and made obeisance. So it's it's even more than the usual bowing down that they do here. So then he sees Benjamin, his mother's son, so his full brother, and asks if this is in fact the youngest brother, um, and they confirm that it is. And he says, so he offers some kind of a blessing. Right to Benjamin. He knew he knew Benjamin was the youngest. He knew Benjamin was the youngest. So he says he wasn't asking to find out. Right. 
He's a, well, he's, he's asking them to confirm that this is Benjamin. Oh, I thought he recognized. Okay. So we're, we're presuming he recognizes, but yeah. he's, again, putting them in the position of, are they going to come clean and say, yeah, this is the guy that you asked us to bring? And then he, he, he must turn to Benjamin to say this, that he says, may God be gracious to you, Bni, my son, my boy. Mm-hmm. Um, and at that point becomes absolutely overwhelmed. And he can't handle it. So he makes an interesting choice, right? He chooses to leave the room. So is he feeling so vulnerable that he can't allow them to see it because um, because it's too much and it's too close and he doesn't know them anymore? Does he leave the room because he's still wanting to be in control and wanting to toy with them? And so he's going to get this under control if it kills him and he's going to go next door and wash his face and do what he needs to do. They don't have to be necessarily mutually exclusive. Clearly... You know, he's deeply, deeply moved by seeing Benjamin. Possibly Benjamin looks like his mother. Right? So Yosef is seeing an, an image of his mother. Well, he's not ready we to do what he does later. Right. He's, he's not, not yet ready. ready. He's, he's not, not ready, ready to be vulnerable in front of them or, or to, to come reconcile. out. Right. Or to he's reconcile. not right. ready to come out. He is mm-hmm. still going to keep the costume in place. Remember, Yosef is in full Egyptian garb. He's married to an Egyptian princess. He has Egyptian children. He is speaking Egyptian, most likely. So he's speaking with his steward. He's speaking with other people. He's most likely speaking Egyptian. We we know he's speaking Egyptian because earlier there's something where the brothers didn't realize that he understood what they were saying amongst themselves because the interpreter was in between. <laughs> right. So, we, well, we don't know here or, if or he's speaking to them in their own language or if he's speaking through an interpreter. We can assume he's important enough that he is speaking through a dignity. You know, he's a dignity. You know, he's got a dignitary who's working on his behalf. Um, but they see him as fully and completely Egyptian. And in many respects, this is what um, a lot of our scholars continue to explore about the relationship of this Parsha to Hanukkah. Because we always read this Parsha at Hanukkah. What is Hanukkah all about? Hanukkah is all about resisting assimilation. Right? Resistance to Greek Hellenizing assimilation. Here we have the paradigmatic assimilated Israelite. He's completely Egyptian. He's completely Egyptian. So, is he really? And how do we, and what does that even mean? Right? So, in other words, our our rabbis and teachers and, and thinkers and philosophers start to explore why do we have to pick necessarily between being fully American and fully Jewish? Right? That Yosef, his sons become two of the 12 tribes. They become part of the founders of our people. And he is completely assimilated. Well, he probably was circumcised, don't you think? So, many Egyptians were as well. Oh, okay. so, yes. Were, yes. Oh, 
Well, I think when you say he was, you're also leaving out that, of course, he wasn't because he's both. You know, he's still, if his sons can become that, then there's something about him that even when assimilated, who you are is who you are. And that's not the robe and the language and the job. It's your family. It's your heritage. It's, you know, it's your soul. It's so if you are fully assimilated as, as a Jew living in America and you have a Christmas tree and you go to midnight math, and you do that, so are you, so you're, you're still, are who you are? You're still Jewish? You're still all that stuff? Yeah? Well, so it makes no difference? Can, if we completely assimilate? You can change your noses, but you can't change your emotions. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's always that... So what does it well, mean? So, what, so I don't know enough about what else is going on for Joseph that his sons can become those tribes. Yeah. There's got to be something else. You know, I'm, I don't. We don't talk about who his God is. You're talking about what he's wearing. So if I'm not wearing a talus and a kippah, but I'm not going to mass and praying to Jesus, then is that more like what Joseph's doing? Right. So the, is these, there a crucifix on the wall? These are the questions. And does, do we know if he taught his boys? And what did he teach right. them about who they are? Right. What did they teach him? And is there one God or what was in his home? Because when he got there, they all knew he was a Hebrew. When who got where? When Joseph got to Egypt, got to Egypt didn't they? they? The people he was among? Egyptian, when he was mm-hmm. sold into slavery to yes. Potiphar, yes. they know he was a Hebrew. Yes. So one would assume his wife, when they got married, knew of his origins. But we have no idea what that. So I guess part of my question is, what does that mean that he was right. Hebrew yet she he marries this princess of Egypt? He's completely immersed in Egyptian culture and society and the power structure and the privilege, you know, of being the second to Pharaoh. What does that mean that he's still Hebrew? Right. Do we know anything more about that? We don't. Like a conversion. We don't know. Is he hiding it? Right. Is it just completely irrelevant to him? Yeah. I'm a cultural Jew in some way. Like, or it means nothing to me. Like, I I don't bagel with his, his and that's all. Right. He has some tastes from home right. that he likes, but other than that, no connection at all to being Hebrew. Then how at does, all. How do his children become? It's not until Grandpa shows up uh-huh. that the children, right. right? Become he. You recall because we're not going to get there um, <laughs> this week, but Yaakov takes them and blesses them. Uh, he takes them as his heirs. He takes them in and says, and we still... Well, like, I'm going to take back what I said about Joseph. <laughs> so All we right. have no idea if it's, you know, maybe Yosef's already told them that. Maybe they know that. But it really is a question for our time. Yeah. How, what, what is it? So we have Hanukkah, which is all about resisting assimilation. Right? No, we want to be who we are. We want to be Jewish. We want to be Hebrew. We want to be whatever. We, want, we don't want to become Greek. And here's Yosef. The paradigmatic assimilated, you know, Hebrew who yet has these children who become, you know, but were it not definers grandpa, of what it means to be Hebrew. But then were it, it says, not for grandpa, they wouldn't be. It says and that's sort of, I mean, I think of, of friends I've had who, 
whose parents didn't believe in religion, didn't raise him with any religion, and neither did grandpa. And so when he, they say, yeah, I think, I think you know, my grandparents were Jewish, but it's gone. It stopped, and he's not. He doesn't know the camp songs. He doesn't know, you know, there's not an ounce of it. I think that if that were Joseph and Grandpa didn't come in, then no, it's, it ends. So, where's that middle ground? I want to speak for Grandpa's. He felt so betrayed by his family, and then he falls in love, and he now has this wonderful wife, and he kind of starts to assimilate it. <coughs> And into something else. I mean, and how many times have we heard that? That being right. Jewish, all that got me or my family was mm-hmm. right. pain and hatred and right. And then both ways. And there are people that right. fall in love with, with you know, with, right. with Jews, and they fall in love with the religion and with the person and the. And we've got no know. problem with them losing their. Whatever they were raised with, and now they're Jewish. Well, that's okay. So there's a big discussion. When we, when we discuss that issue, part of the discussion is because is there a difference for a minority culture, religion, people? You know, it, mm-hmm. Is it different for a minority in terms of what the stakes are in, in having someone give up what they were raised to become that minority part of that minority culture. Does that make sense? Of course. That, that the stakes are very different for a, a culture that's trying to survive. Of course. And, and, but in terms so, so you can have the, the, the principle that it's okay to convert to us and it's not okay to leave us. That's fine. But at the same time, you know, you can say every individual here in our, in our you know, freedom of choice country can make the choice for themselves. And, and, and we can regret and it. Does. And we can be happy when we get a new one. Right? There's a saying that all but, Jews now in America are Jews by choice. Mm-hmm. Richard? Yes, um, in terms of the uh, sort of the rabbinic commentary where they have you know, the, the story of the Maccabees on the one hand and its take on assimilation and the story of Joseph, I mean, Joseph is... The story of Joseph and Jacob is clearly happening well before Moses. So the sort of the so do, what, if anything, do we know about uh, how the Hebrews of the time, Joseph's time, thought about the covenantal relationship, if any? I mean, for the males, all they knew is they got circumcised when they were young, and and they honored the God of their father, right? But other than that, I mean, there's, I mean, it's all about family. You're saying that they didn't have much to give up. You, well, up I mean, to some extent, I mean, it wasn't. It's not like it's not like he was leaving an established religion where people say, "Yep, God, I'm with you," as opposed because at that time God was the God of his father Jacob. It was. It wasn't like. You know the God, if, if you know what I mean. And whereas for the, for the Maccabees, it's sort of like you know, no, you know, the if if you want to believe in the gods that you believe in, that's fine. But for us, we're sticking with our God and everything everything that comes with it. And so, um, I mean, even if you look at the story of Jacob and and when 
uh, when he when he marries Rachel. I mean, isn't isn't there in the story like she is she is of a different right. group? I mean, her presumably her father believed in a different god, or if if they if if her father believed in a god at all, and he did. Okay. But he had gods. He had gods. She took them. Right. And and so is she is she is she assimilating to Jacob's God or is she saying, Well, Jacob's a really nice guy. I think we're gonna go off with Jacob and where where you go I will follow. And it's sort of like it's not like So it's clearly different. It's it's obviously clearly yeah. different after you're talking about an established tradition versus a clan's relationship with Yudhe Absolutely. Yeah. You know, it seems that however uh, uh, people leave their childhood uh, beginnings and off the world to discover themselves, uh, there's always that Kesher, that connection from way back. And uh, you take in, in Joseph's case, he wanted to be married with his family in, uh, in Canaan in, in the end. And, and, uh, very often, uh, I see uh, we see it in our own society. Young people uh, are off doing their thing, and they get married. They come back. They want their kids to get educated. But there's always that little Kesha, that connection. And uh, um, that you don't really experience until you have your own children. You don't really find it. Yeah. Well, because you don't you don't know about you. You know there's something there. In the dynamics nowadays were. Young people uh, don't participate, say, in church or synagogue life, but they uh, they know they're uh, Catholic or they know they're Jewish, and that's a cashier itself. Okay. Wait. Um, my name is Lynn. I'm sorry. Okay, Richard. Richard. Going off what you were saying, mm-hmm. I seem to recall that we weren't a people until we got the Ten Commandments, and that... When we were in Egypt, we were known as the Hebrews. So we weren't really a people with these deep, deep traditions until after we received the Ten Commandments and accepted them. So exact, that's what I was thinking. Mm-hmm. I heard uh, an interview on NPR a couple of weeks ago with Amos Oz, who, mm-hmm. a famous Israeli secular mm-hmm. author, who with his daughter has just written a book called Jews and Words. Jews and what? Words, Jews and words. And part of their thesis, they're addressing the issue of what is a Jew and how, I mean, you can't be a secular Christian. You cannot be a secular Muslim. You can be a secular Jew. And so their answer to what is a Jew is that we are all tied together by our words, by the words that we study. And as we say, the the Torah is an Yitzchayim. It is the tree of life. And that it is the words that, in effect, are the the blood that connects us all. And if you don't study, and you're a secular Jew, and you don't engage with those words, we need to read the book, (laughs) right? They're not, but but they're not, but they're not necessarily just talking about Torah. Mm -hmm. They're talking about our history, our stories. Well, in that case, you're very reconstructionist. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe no, absolutely. That the, the, the Reconstructionist answer is how you can be a secular Jew and not a secular any of those other things is because we are not primarily 
or only a religion. We are a civilization. Right. So that as a member of that civilization, you are a Jew, regardless of how you relate mm-hmm. to the religious aspect of that people. And, and, and their answer, in a sense, as I understood it from this interview, is that it is in the talking about and the studying of our stories slash texts that has created us as a people, not genetics and not necessarily the religion or the country we live in or anything. It's an interesting... I've got to get the book in the Yeah, yeah really. Yeah. That's only, but I would say, but I would argue that that is only because since, you know, Catholics have the Vatican and Muslims have whatever their top religious well, they authorities don't. are that they... There isn't well, in this. Well, except that, well, I don't, well, then I don't It's know like Judaism. You, it's not There's like, a zillion schools. Okay, but, uh, all right, well, I don't I personally can't speak to whether or not you can consider yourself um, Muslim if you don't believe in God, for example. You cannot. Muslim, you have to accept okay. the all right, five so there pillars. Is, so there is, so there is, so there is something external that tells you what you ought to believe, whether you do or not is a different issue. In, in Judaism, it's like we have no choice to some extent but to infer for ourselves meaning from our words and our stories as to you know what is going to give meaning to our spiritual lives. Because we are not, because as we said, not, about creed. We are a civilization. We are not primarily a religion. We are a civilization. I've heard Muslim, mm-hmm. I've heard Muslim referred to as secular Muslim the ones who don't want to live under Islamic law. They believe everything else, but they don't want Islamic law. So I think there are Muslims. I've seen it a lot. I think there are well, people but by who consider other more. Muslims. <laughs> so they may consider them religion sick. versus civilization. So if we're reading the Torah, and that's not religion, that's just reading the story, and where's the religion part? Is it in the one God? So it... I'm, so, so let me let me back up. Let me be clear. Um, to become Jewish, one doesn't say, "I believe X, therefore mm-hmm. I am now a Jew." And if I don't believe that, I am no longer a Jew. I am something else. Right? One is either born into the Jewish people, in which case you are um, part of this tribe, and I'm going to mm-hmm. use that word on purpose. You are born into a tribe. So when I think about the best um, parallel, I think about my time in northern Minnesota. So I understood things much better after I lived among the Ojibwe, you know, as the surrounding culture because or, or, or reality. Because if you're Ojibwe, no one asks you, yes, what do you, what do you believe? You know, and, and, and how many times do you go to a sweat? Mm-hmm. And have you smoked the peace pipe this week? Mm-hmm. Oh, then how can you be Ojibwe? The you didn't go to the sweat? Like then, are you really Ojibwe? Mm-hmm. Right? So no one, no one would think to ask that question of the Ojibwe. Why? Because they get it. That Ojibwe is an identity that is way bigger than what religious observances one does or doesn't do. It, it, it's just much bigger than that. It's about... A worldview. It's about a culture. It's about food. It's about history. It's about how you see everything given that history. So it's, it's about language. Very much. So that is way closer to what it means to be Jewish, is what I'm saying, is what Reconstructionism says, is you're born Ojibwe. Right. Or you're adopted by the Ojibwe <laughs> tribe because you personally al- align yourself with the way they see things, mm-hmm. with what they take as their religious 
you know, way of talking about the relationship with the divine. You like their people. You fit with their people. You hang with their people. You marry into their people, right? Or something happens that you become a part of their people. Even if culturally you have other origins and still other likes and tastes and, and participations, you can become so close with one of them or many of them that you are adopted by that tribe. You are given an Ojibwe name and you become part of the Ojibwe people. Not just their religion. Mm-hmm. That's what I mean. You know, that you don't... Religion ha- is one small part. Is a part of a much bigger thing to say, what does it mean that I'm Jewish? Mm-hmm. I would not so use the word small in our history, but it is a part. Mm-hmm. It is a part right. of what it means to say I'm Jewish is that I, this is my way of... The, that Judaism is the religious expression of the Jewish people. It is not the only mm-hmm. expression of... I mean, there's other expressions of, of the Jewish people. I'm sure we all know people who, or I, I know people who are atheists and who don't practice any of what we would call Judaism, but they're very Jewish, t- very very Jewish, mm-hmm. culturally and otherwise. And there, there's something about our people. Now, in America, the word tribal is a bad word because we are the country where you come here and you leave your tribe behind. That is what the ideology of America is. This is why Reconstructionism is so uniquely American. And we face very different issues as American Jews, perhaps, than, than Jews face in other But I'm going to challenge that only in that I think that's what America was. Right. I'm not sure anymore that's the I think we are much more a tossed salad yep. than a melting pot of, you know... Depends on whether you're in a red state or a blue state. (laughs) So I think that is a tension that is still, Mm -hmm. I mean, that is very present right now, is it? There's many people who say what America is, is the place you leave your tribe behind. Exactly right. And I think a lot of folks these days are saying absolutely not. America is about lots of different tribes living together with their own cultural identities um, Little Tokyo, Chinatown. Yes, Vietnam, yes. Vietnam, in a place that is safe and that affirms everybody's right to, you know, yeah. come and swear loyalty to, you know, this country and this set of, you know, ideals at, through the lens of their own identity. And and um, right now, identity. It's very interesting the time we live in in terms of even this word identity. That there are some folks who are saying you can't use the word identity singular. You have to say identities, Mm -hmm. that there is no central identity for any one of us. And it's just like this whole, it's like, it scares me because like it like busts apart my whole understanding that, okay, there's one integral, you know, me. And there there really is a a lot of talk now about that that it isn't one, right? um, Years ago when Fiddler on the Roof came out in in, the... In my office, we had about uh, 25 uh, office people, 25 or 30, and from every phase, uh, you had uh, every uh, color, religion, and so on, and they all related to Fiddler <laughs> from their own culture. That's right, right? Because many cultures have similar stories. So we're not going to get to the end of our... Parts of this morning. Um, so we will uh, make a Misha Berach for those who are ill.